0: A short time ago, an American airplane dropped one bomb on
1: Hiroshima. Been, being Mr. Gorbachev teared down this. The American people, I think, is good people. They, are, they have not to charge with the guilty of all the lies.
0: Welcome back. Cold War 38. Ray, what's the safe word, Ray? Butt plug. All right. If you, have, if you hear Ray say those words during the show, mm-hmm. don't panic. Nope. It's just his safe word.
1: Yeah. I sat on something wrong.
0: So at the end of the last episode, I was uh, talking about uh, spheres of influence and why the Americans wanted the Europeans to give up on the idea because they wanted access to their markets but meanwhile, the U.S. still believe in the Monroe Doctrine. And in fact, the Monroe Doctrine was the dominant way that America built its economic empire after World War II. Uh, it was still uh, very much a part of American political thinking right mm-hmm. up until this very day.
1: Just a quick question. I mean, did you, in your research, did you run across. Any attempt by any American to somehow explain how the Monroe, Monroe Doctrine is not good old-fashioned spheres of influence? Did anybody give that a go, a spin, a twist, a lie, a different point of view? Because yeah, no, I- I've never heard of it. <laughs> no. we ju- we're just like fuck it. This is us. It's okay when we yeah. do it, not when you do it, because we- we-, we we wear the white hats. All yeah. right, just checking. Just wanted that out there.
0: Just as some examples, in 1962, during the Cuban Missile Crisis, President John F. Kennedy uh, referenced the Monroe Doctrine as grounds for America's confrontation with the Soviets over the ballistic missiles they were putting on Cuban soil. Um, mm-hmm. In 1980, it was sort of part and parcel of the Carter Doctrine with regards to their um, interventions in the Middle East. Um, the Carter Doctrine mm. basically stated that the United States would use military force, if necessary, to defend what they called its national interests in the Middle East. Um, wow. I've got a quote here from Carter's national security advisor, Zbigniew Brzezinski, who, by the way, was right. born in Warsaw in Poland... Um, His speech that he wrote, that Carter delivered, says, Let our position be absolutely clear. Any attempt by any outside force to gain control of the Persian Gulf region would be regarded as an assault on the vital interests of the United States of America. And such an assault would be repelled by any means necessary, including military force. So it's... You know, nowhere fucking near the United States, but it's <laughs> an assault on the vital interests of the United States, and we will meet it
1: with force. I can explain that. I can, What we did was we took out our pocket knife and we cut off a, par, a little part of the Monroe Doctrine and we placed it right, right over. I thought you were going Persian
0: to say, Gulf. on a tree somewhere in the Persian <laughs> Gulf, you carved with your pocket knife. Murka was here.
1: <laughs> yeah. Fuck off! America was here. Fuck off! It's like yeah, yeah. No, putting so a flag just... on the moon. <laughs> <laughs> it's ours. But yeah, so so basically, we transplanted the Monroe Doctrine to wherever the hell it's convenient. Now, Zbigniew big
0: new Brzezinski, uh, interesting life story. His father Tadeusz Brzezinski was a Polish diplomat who was posted to Germany from thirty-one to thirty-five. So he would have had a lot to do with Poduski's non-aggression pact, the Polish-German Treaty of 1934. Right. And um, from 1936 to 38, he was in the Soviet Union during Stalin's Great Purge. Yeah,
1: and during damn. this period
0: where there was a Polish-German treaty, um, he, so interesting that they, you know, before, For the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact, uh, he must have seen some stuff. So in 39, 38, 39, he was sent to Canada. Uh, Conveniently, they were in Canada when the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact was signed and uh, both Germany and the Soviet Union invaded Poland and he couldn't go back to Poland. And so uh, Zbigniew grew up in Canada and eventually moved to the United States where he became a citizen. And wrote a number of very, very, uh, very good books, very highly esteemed books on the Soviet Union, American foreign policy. One of them that I've been reading recently is his 1997 book, The Grand Chessboard. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a quote in that that I thought was notable. He said, It is imperative that no Eurasian challenger emerges capable of dominating Eurasia and thus also of challenging America. So I think mm. that's pretty clear. We don't want anyone to be able to challenge America's global dominance. That is his viewpoint, one of America's most uh, esteemed surviving um, geopolitical thinkers. He's kind of thought of as the Democrats' version of Henry Kissinger. Um, right. And that's... That's the view from the geopolitical uh, modelers in the United yeah. States, the planners. Um, we don't want anyone right. to become powerful enough to challenge. He actually refers to it in his book as our global hegemony. doesn't want anyone to be able to... And America's job, according to Brzezinski, is to do whatever they have to do to prevent anyone challenging America's hegemony.
1: Well, yeah, that's in the smack right in the middle of the Cold War, so at least that part of it makes sense. But you, you hate to think that, yeah, your, your country's no, pretty no. much like everybody no, else.
0: 1997 no, he wrote that book.
1: Oh, I thought you said 79. I'm sorry. I apologize. Now, he
0: was the national security advisor in 79, mm. to Carter, but he wrote this mm. book in the late 90s. Oh, this is gotcha. like six years after the Cold War officially ended
1: is it Is it over I mean I mean, why would officially. you want something to end officially? Why would you want something to end when you technically want it? everything's great for you, the other guy lost They're, they've been you know humiliated and lowered or whatever I mean wouldn't you want that to continue? Why let anybody challenge you but that's just as late me, as nineteen
0: eighty four I've got a quote from the then CIA director Robert Gates, who was defending mm-hmm. the iran contra Operation. Um, oh I don't know if people listening to this know much about that. We'll get to that one day. But uh, he was um, you know, supporting the U.S.'s illegal intervention in Nicaragua, and he said to not do that would be totally to abandon the Monroe Doctrine. So as late as 84, you have the CIA director quoting the Monroe Doctrine as being a critical piece of American foreign policy. But let's not worry about those things now. I just want to make the point that, on one hand, back in Yalta, America's going, come on, spheres of influence are bad. On the other hand, (laughs) that's how they continue to run
1: their own political thinking
0: forever. Um, But they're still hoping they can convince the Soviets and the British to give up the idea. But even uh, even heading into Yalta, they knew that the Soviets and the British had signed the naughty document, as Churchill called it, the percentages agreement. With regards to the division of influence in the Balkans and Greece, mm-hmm. um, and Churchill had convinced Roosevelt that, look, you know, this isn't this isn't serious. It's not important. It was just something that we did. It was crazy. We were drunk. Um, <laughs> don't worry about it. It's only right. during the war, you know. After the war, oh man, like we're going to tear that shit up. Uh, <laughs> But, uh, yeah. But I don't think. It meant
1: nothing to me. Yeah.
0: It was just, it was a thing. It was a crazy war (laughs) fling. Summertime love. Yeah, exactly. Summertime romance. (laughs) 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 Yeah. So, um, but at Yalta, Stalin wanted to get the agreement of the other two that Russia would be able to maintain the territorial arrangements that he agreed to with Hitler back in 39 with the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact, as we've said many times, um, his main goal were to develop a buffer zone of friendly states around the Soviet border, a cordon sanitaire. He wanted reparations and also wanted what Russian leaders have wanted for centuries, access to a warm water port. Now, I'm not sure, Mm. Ray, that I fully understood in the past why that was so important, but I did some research on it, and you're a World War mm-hmm. II expert. You're the world's leading World War II expert or authority. Can you explain yeah. to the listeners why a warm water port was important to the Russians then as now?
1: Well, you've seen people, you know, go taking a swim or a jump in the frozen and frozen ponds and frozen lakes and stuff like that. That's fun, but occasionally you want warm water to swim in. I think I'm wrong. Anyway, so it's all about trade. It's about having access uh, to like, like you said, this on every podcast we've ever done. It's all about commerce. It's all about trade. It's all about money because money gets you power. So uh, I see the Russians have what they have. Archangel and then they have something. Near um, Leningrad, uh, another, but the cold water ports where everything freezes up, uh, they have to have warm water ports. They need to be able to go through the Black Sea, through the Dardanelles. They have to be able to uh, to get things out. They have to have access where they can use shipping all year long, and and they just need access to that. And the Czars had been obsessed with the Dardanelles for years, if not for generations. And Stalin, obviously, taken over power was uh, picking up the mantle from the czars, and he was going to go after pretty much everything that they'd ever wanted. This was something that Russia, as a power, obsessed with. And uh, I'm sure there's more to it than that. But, yeah, you have to have warm water ports. You can't have your ports frozen over for half of the year and expect to e- economically compete with everybody else.
0: Now, that's a good um, that's a good explanation. But if, with your permission, I'll go Please. into a little bit more detail. Good overview, though, mate. Well done. Now, a warm water port, as Ray explained, is one where the water doesn't freeze in winter and they're available all year <laughs> round.
1: Let it go, let it go. I'm letting go.
0: <laughs> good. That's <laughs> good philosophy while I kick you in the balls. Um, <laughs> Do you need to say butt plug yet?
1: <laughs> butt plug. Uh, no, go ahead. And Russia
0: was, one, was really the only major economy that doesn't have one. Well, they have one, kind of, but they really needed more to have a well-rounded uh, economy like, say, the United States. Now, going as far back as Peter the Great, this is something that has been important to the Russian nation. And Peter the Great was the ruler of a landlocked nation. The Baltic is practically a Swedish lake, the Black Sea belonged entirely to the Turks, whilst at the same time the British had access, free access to all of the oceans and, and seas yeah. at that stage. The world's mightiest navy, they're an island, they could go wherever they want to go. France uh, had an entire coastline that faced the Atlantic and, and had con- uh, controlled 1,400 miles of the Mediterranean. Um, Spain, obviously, was a, has a major sea power for a long time Germany uh, had the North Sea Canal which had an outlet into the ocean um, The United States, of course, has two oceans one on either side that it has free access to uh, Japan, like Britain and Ireland, has ocean all around it it can have ports, it can get out but Russia was landlocked and ice-locked for a large part of the year. Vladivostok, which became a port, I think, around 1860, is ice-locked for something like four months mm. of the year. And it's situated across from the Sea of Japan, so you know, when they can get out, they have to deal with the right. Japanese who have the ability to make it difficult. Even Port Arthur, which is their other major port down further south... Um, is 4,400 miles by the shortest railway route from Damn. Moscow. So not the most you know effective place to have right. a port. Uh, in the north, Russia is virtually frozen in winter. In the West, Europe blocks their entry to the Atlantic Ocean and the Mediterranean. In the South, they've got to get through Iran, Afghanistan, Pakistan in order to get to the Arabian Sea. And then in the East, they've got China and Korea separating them from the South China Sea. So, it's a major issue for Russia. has always been a major issue in terms of their ability to trade. As a major economy, their ability to get ships... Today, still, the major way that global trade trade happens is, I think we talked about on Cuba episodes, is via the sea, sea voyages. And it's also, you know, for sea communications, it's important, particularly back in the old days before telegraphs and wires and mm-hmm. internets um, and satellites. So
1: it's it, the, the
0: need that Stalin had for a warm water port wasn't about global domination. This is just about being able to trade on an even footing with these other major economies to have access to a warm water port all year round, and to be able to do that uh, through alliances, treaties, negotiations, if you can, and if you can't, through occupation and military force. It's uh, it's a issue of life or death, as he in fact says, and we'll have a quote from him later on to that extent. And I think it's important for people to understand how important that is because if you don't, if you haven't thought about that in depth, like I honestly hadn't, then you go, well, a water port, warm water port, right. what the fuck, go for a nice swim, as you said. Your initial analysis, which was which was the amount of depth that I've come to expect from uh, the Harris. Um <laughs> But it really is, as I have grown to understand, um, a vital, vital factor. That's easy to overlook
1: when it's just a throwaway yeah, Peter line. Peter the Great was, when he was a czar of all the Russias, only one year during his reign was his country not at war trying to grab more territory, trying to get uh, warm water ports. He basically dedicated his entire reign to it. So again, especially with a massive country like Russia, with all the resources, they have a lot of unskilled people. They have to bring stuff in. So yeah, this was literally economic life or death for them. And that's why he was willing to, to go to that extent. And now here's Stalin kicking the shit out of the Germans, and he is going to finally get what no czar, or almost no before him, could get, which is access to the Black Sea, to the Mediterranean. Nothing is going to get in his way.
0: It's all about Russian security, their economic security, as well as their physical security and buffer zones. You know, it's it's not about just taking over the world to spread communism for purely ideological reasons because Stalin mm-hmm. is some sort of bond villain as I think he's often portrayed in the West.
1: Petting a cat with no hair. Yeah,
0: rubbing his hands together. You know, there are, and again, I know I've said this a billion times, and I'll say it another billion before the series is over, there are genuine, practical, pragmatic reasons why Stalin is trying to get to get the things he's trying to get, and the leaders that come after him, and the leaders that came before him. You know, the Russians are trying to do Practical, pragmatic things for the survival of their nation. We may disagree or not like the way that they do it. We we could say it's unethical, it's immoral, but we could say the same things about how America built or you know took over Mexico, took over the Indian nations, took over Hawaii, mm-hmm. took over Puerto Rico, took over Cuba. Uh, I could go on. Um, we could say the same thing about the way the British yeah, built their empire, yeah. invaded countries and took over countries. They controlled twenty-five percent of the world's landmass before World War Two. It's not like Damn. the world just rang them up one day and said, "Hey, can you come and occupy us, please? Because we really like your tea." We um, you like your accent. Yeah. So this is the way it's always been done. The Russians were doing it, but we go, "Russians bad." Everyone else, let's not think about it too much. Everyone else, we think, you know, it was just, it was just the era. Then you have to think, you can't, you can't think about it in terms of, anyway. So, um, George Kennan, the black dude off Saturday Night Live. I knew that. He, um, 1944, he returned to the U.S. Embassy in Moscow after being away for seven years, wrote a 35-page memo called Russia, Seven Years Later, which I have read, and it's a tremendous piece of work, as is all of Kennan's writings. He was really, really... Um, quite brilliant in his ability to analyse and articulate what was going on. He wrote in this memo, this is 1944, just before the Yalta Conference, that Mm -hmm. uh, Stalin wanted the re-establishment of Russian power in Finland and the Baltic states in eastern Poland and the Ukraine. And a key line from Kenan here is, it is a matter of indifference to Moscow, whether a given area is communistic or not. But the main thing is that it should be amenable to Moscow's influence and, if possible, to Moscow authority.
1: Basically a sphere of influence. Yeah,
0: and they don't care if it's communist or not.
1: Yeah, they just... Just tell the Well, line.
0: yeah, just give us what we want. We don't care. You can have democracy. You can paint flowers on your Vulcan, bum. Whatever. Yeah, we don't yeah, care. Whatever. Just, just fucking let us get what we want. We don't care what's going on, really. Right. Now, his description of Stalin in this document is interesting. Listen to this. This is his analysis. He starts off by going, you know, at this stage, no one's ever met Stalin. He said he's like the most powerful, mysterious person on the planet, never leaves mm-hmm. Russia, as we know. Even in Moscow, not many people ever get to meet him face to face. He's very uh, security conscious, scared. Yeah. You know, very few people have ever seen him in the flesh. Um, doesn't tend to walk the streets a lot. And when he does, he's surrounded by bodyguards. But his description, I think, was great. Here it goes. Courageous, but wary. Quick to anger and suspicion, but patient and persistent in the execution of his purposes. Capable of acting with great decision or of waiting and dissembling as circumstances may require. Outwardly modest and simple but jealous of the prestige and dignity of the state which he heads, not learned, yet shrewd and pitilessly realistic, exacting in his demands for loyalty, respect and obedience, a keen and unsentimental student of men. He can be, like a true Georgian hero, a great and good friend or an implacable, dangerous enemy. It is difficult for him to be anything in between.
1: Damn. Sounds like Sulla. No worst friend. Was it no? No greater enemy, friend, worst no worse friend, enemy. No worst, uh, yeah, I mean, because because we've seen um footages and pictures. And loves of Yalta, a bit of yeah. ass
0: play. That was the <laughs> we'll last line, now. by the way. You left it off.
1: <laughs> they, they got taken off, waxed off. But yeah, I mean, just picture Stalin at the uh, the table at Yalta. I mean, he is just. Sitting there, listening, rarely speaks, nods or whatever. Tells his uh, advisors, you know, when it's their turn to speak. So when he does get up and say something, it's going to be a big deal, and we'll get into that later. But yeah, he is—he is the most practical person. Don't give me speeches. Don't give me platitudes. I don't, you know, what's that famous saying? How many um, divisions does the Pope have, or whatever, something like that? For him, it's all about reality, about practicality, and uh, what's the reality on the ground, and that—that's the person they're all dealing with. And these guys are Western educated, and they're. You know, political philosophy is important to them and what's right and the the good of mankind and all that stuff. Sounds like, fuck that. Germany's attacked us twice in 30 years. Let's talk it. Let's get it down to brass tacks. And that's what they're going to be up against. And that's what we're going to talk about later. Uh,
0: In 1944, Ivan Maisky, who we've talked about before, wrote a memo. For Stalin and Molotov, etc., with his thoughts on what their aim should be with regarding dominating Europe after the war, do you
1: want to talk a bit about that? A bit about that. Um, which which part is this? Is is this a part where they don't even mention Poland? Um. Yes. Well, I just thought it was interesting because they bring they bring Mainsky back, and I think we how much I can't remember we covered, but after Molotov took over for him, you know, Minsky was. Um, Pushed to the side, but he comes back and he's working for Molotov. And when he writes something, pretty much only Molotov and um, and Stalin can read it. But basically, when they're coming to Yalta, they he's got his position papers on all these different subjects. But there is nothing about Poland in there, even though everybody's ready to talk about it. Everybody's on you know on uh, pins and needles about what what's going to be decided about Poland. To Stalin, this is not even something that's worth talking about because he, back in '44, has already decided Poland will be ours, Poland will be Russian controlled, it will be communist. And so they could bring it up, but we're pretty much just going to slap it away. And so they had to pretty much figure out a way to let the Western powers know that this was a non-issue, but at the same time still to be able to work with them on so many other issues.
0: This memo that I mentioned that Mysky wrote back in January of '44, so like a year and a bit before Yalta, basically suggested that they sign 20-year mutual assistance treaties with Romania, Yugoslavia, Bulgaria, and Greece, like the one they'd already signed with the Czechs in 1943, which would give them a legitimate reason to have Soviet presence in each region. So that was his suggestion, not invading, not uh, enforcing a communist uh, party across Eastern Europe in Greece, but a mutual assistance treaty. That was Mm -hmm. Maisky's suggestion. He even said, look, if the British don't like it, invite them to be a signatory to the agreement. That's Mm -hmm. all right. Bring them in. It's okay. We've got nothing to hide from the British here. We just want to have treaties. With right. all of these uh, countries that say, you know, if, if we get attacked, we'll support you and vice versa. Um, I think that's really interesting because... So that's how Soviet leadership were thinking. They were doing some of their modelling uh, as late as 1944, when it was obvious, you know, that they were going, going to win and they were going to have the largest land army in the world. Now they're thinking about mutual assistance packs is interesting. Yeah. Yes.
1: I am just going to say the irony is it's almost like a miniature United Nations. But it's also a treaty. We're all going to protect each other. And if somebody attacks one of us, they attack all of us, which is pretty much in some ways what the United Nations is about, which is stopping either a future war from happening or stopping an aggressor once war has broken out. So like you said, they're just obsessed with security. The more the merrier, bring them on, let them sign it, let's everybody be a part of this. And hopefully there will, there will not be a war in the future, 20, 30, 50 years from now.
0: And he was trying to, he also suggested in this document that they try and strengthen their relationship with Iran and try and use that to get access to the Iranian ports on the Iranian Sea, which would in turn give them access to the Indian Ocean and the warm water ports, as I mentioned before. This essentially forms the basis of the percentages agreement that Churchill and Stalin worked out in October 1944. And You know, I thought it was interesting that when Roosevelt uh, got upset about the nature of the percentages agreement, this whole spheres of influence thing, Churchill himself Mm. used Latin America as a defense Mm. saying he was just taking his lead from the Americans. (laughs) So it's not Cameron, the commie here, who's going, yeah, but what about fucking Monroe Doctrine and Latin America? Winston motherfucking Churchill himself blue blood blue blood yeah. imperialist Churchill said to Frankie hey go fuck yourself hypocrite <laughs> give up on the Monroe right. Doctrine and we can talk otherwise seriously go fuck yourself
1: yeah I'm just doing over here which you did over that's there that's yeah. an yeah, actual yeah, yeah. quote
0: and it's the same with Stalin right Stalin was like oh you don't like it we'll give up Hawaii no we'll shut the fuck up then get out oh, of my face right I mean that is the reality of the situation here. America's hypocrisy, telling the rest of the world to do one thing while they do the other thing, and of course, you know that's not how America positions it to their people, sure. and how Hollywood positions it. But Stalin and Churchill weren't dumb dumbs; they weren't about to take any shit during these meetings.
1: And, and just just going back to Poland for a second, I mean, if there is going to be no matter how slight, any allowance of spheres of influence, no matter how tiny, how can Poland not be under Soviet control? It's right next to them. It's the corridor to their country. So at the very least, if, there, if any of it is allowed at all, how can the Western powers be shocked if Stalin's going to go, no, Poland's ours. We're going to control that from now on because we can't trust Poland to defend their own borders, much less defend ours. So if, if, there's, if, there's, if this is going to be tolerated at all, if we're going to do the status quo, how can you not think that Poland is going to be ours? Exactly. Uh, now, a little bit
0: after Mysky wrote his uh, memo, Maxim Litvinov did his own memo. And I thought this is a good opportunity to talk a little bit about Litvinov. Around about the time that everyone was a Yalta. uh, An article was published under a pseudonym Mm -hmm. in the Washington Post, maybe the New York Times, can't remember which, which basically talked about uh, security spheres instead of spheres of influence. Security Mm. spheres. And a copy of this was faxed, telegrammed, telegraphed, probably telegraphed, yeah, to, e- emailed, uh, to, uh, Roosevelt, Google Glasses, and, uh, they, the Americans, uh, Department of State worked out somehow that this was written by Litvinov. I don't know how they worked that out, but mm. it was a way of trying to influence the debate in the U.S. by positioning the Russian thinking on what should happen after World War II, and, um, I thought it was a good opportunity to talk a little bit about Litvinov because I don't think we've done a bio on him. He was um, Molotov's predecessor as the top commissar for foreign affairs. But at this point, he was only the deputy commissar for foreign affairs. He'd been demoted in 1939.
1: Why, Ray? He was slightly Jewish. (laughs)
0: <laughs> yeah, slightly Jewish, yes. Uh, born into a Lithuanian Jewish banking family as Meyer Hanoff Wallach Finkelstein in 1876. Yes, he was a Jew, and the whole thing about having Jews negotiating a pact with uh,
1: Hitler... Not... Yeah, not not, not going to work. Yeah. Well, and the other thing was that he was... Um, he had spent time in the West. He spoke English, obviously. I, I, he might have spoken another language, I'm not sure. But even to a certain degree, because of that background, Stalin didn't trust him. So between not being able to negotiate with the, uh, with the Nazis and also having all this Western influence, his background, he, uh, Stalin wasn't a big fan. So it was time for him to move aside for someone more um, suitable to, to talk to the Nazis.
0: I'm not sure about him not trusting him.
1: Uh, I don't know. Okay. Did you find evidence of that, or are you just making no, no, that up? No, no, I read that. Shit, I read that. Some, one of the books is just that big. Oh, oh it's the Trump defense. I no. see. <laughs> Someone told me. Someone told me that. I don't know.
0: Someone told me that. I don't know. I read it somewhere.
1: No, no I can't. I honestly Trump can't defense. remember where. I apologize. Ah,
0: yeah, that's all right. I don't know. You might be right. But um, I'll get to Why that. Why don't we just um... fucking
1: assume I'm Right. <laughs> God, that felt good. Uh, no, I'm sorry, go
0: ahead. Track record, <laughs> past track. experience. Ouch. Ouch. <laughs> yeah. That hurt. Yeah. Here's another kick yeah. to the balls.
1: <laughs> Ball I'm sorry, go ahead. Um... Go ahead.
0: <laughs> So anyway, he wrote his own proposal, which was an ambitious kind of extension of Mysky's proposal. He suggested the the Soviets take security control over Sweden, Finland, Poland, Czechoslovakia, Hungary, Romania, all of the Balkans except for Greece and Turkey, because, of course, they're going to give Greece to Britain. Um, He said Britain should have control over Western Europe. Uh, but with Denmark, Germany, Austria, and Italy being a neutral zone. Mm-hmm. And he was uh, one of only, you know, a few, if not the only one of the senior Russians who believed in cooperation with the West during the war and after the war, which, you know, might be one of the reasons why you could be right and Stalin didn't uh, fully trust him because he was. Believed in cooperation, a bit like Harry Hopkins or even um, George Kennan. Kind of believed that cooperation, and even Roosevelt, I think, believed that cooperation was probably the best way forward. And I think Stalin did to a large degree at this point too. I think he was cynical whether or not they could cooperate, but he believed that it was going to be in their best interest if they could all get along. So anyway, back to his bio. He was um, one of those Russian Jewish... Bolshevik revolutionaries that Churchill had railed against in the 1920s said they were the cause of all the world's problems because he was an anti-Semite. No, he wasn't really, just an anti-Russian Semite. Uh, (laughs) Litvinov joined the Russian Social Democratic Labor Party, the SDLP, in 1898, at a time when the party was still an illegal organisation. And as we know, it was customary for the members to have pseudonyms like Lenin and Stalin, and he changed his name to Litvinov. In 1903, he joined the Bolsheviks, so very early on. Um, And then when the Russian government began arresting Bolsheviks in 1906, he left, spent the next 10 years as an arms dealer for the party. Imagine that as a life, man. He was based in Paris travel through europe uh would pretend to be a procurement officer f- from ecuador sure. uh because no one could tell the difference between a russian accent and an ecuadorian <laughs> accent apparently all the time. and he would buy rifles and uh in belgium and germany and the austro-hungarian empire and send them back to the bolsheviks In 1907, he went to London to attend the Fifth Party Congress of the RSDLP Mm. um, and initially had to rely on charity for accommodation in London. However, the party uh, eventually managed to rent a house for him. And who did he share that house with? Tell me. Joseph Stalin. In 1907, he shared a house with with uh, Stalin in London. So they go way back. Now, in 1910, he moved from Paris to live in Mm -hmm. London, uh, where he still was uh, when the October Revolution happened in 1917, and he was appointed at the time uh, as the Soviet government's uh, representative in Great Britain. But it was sort of an unofficial diplomatic uh, position, uh, similar to that of Britain's unofficial agent in Russia at the time, Bruce Lockhart. Now, in 1918, Litvinov was arrested by the British on the charge of uh, addressing public gatherings, opposing Britain's intervention in the Russian Civil War, which we've talked about right. before. Not allowed to speak out in public against Britain about Britain going to war. Uh, and Lockhart was in prison for a similar reason in Russia, and they did a prisoner swap, so we got back I to Russia. I did want
1: to mention, I'm sorry, just one thing, just to add, just to add a little color to your story. He had, back in 1908, uh, around there, he uh, did money laundering for Stalin. In case you didn't mention that, when we were, I can't remember which episode, uh, Stalin was uh, going at one point in his life. He was uh, basically a bank thief. He was going around robbing people, giving the money to Lithuanos, and he loved, and he would, um, he would launder it in Western Europe and then you bring it back to him. So these guys have got quite the history together.
0: Right. Buying guns.
1: Yes. Um, Sorry.
0: Yeah, no, good. No, I didn't have that story. That's a good one. So following his release, he goes back to Moscow, gets there in 1918, and he was a major proponent of disarmament. So he's an interesting guy. Uh, he was influential in making the Soviet Union a party to the Kellogg-Briand Pact of 1928. Not to be confused with the Chateau Briand Pact, which is just where you drink a lot of old antique wine. Uh, vintage wine, I think, is the proper term.
1: Um, the Kellogg-Briand Pact. Now, do you know much about that? Um, just 20 seconds worth. As far as I can gather, they someone came up with a brilliant idea to outlaw war and someone's thinking this is so stupid it's going to fail but no one wanted to say that so as far as I can remember people kept signing up for it and and pushing it to the next level and it eventually um, becomes either law or international law whatever but from what I can remember it was pretty much outlawing war you were no longer allowed to fight other nations if you had a problem with them
0: yeah yeah I mean in a lot of ways it didn't work (laughs) But in a lot of ways, it was the precursor to a lot of international law and the thinking that went into the United Nations. Basically, the idea was, look, if you have a conflict with another nation, you're going to resolve it through negotiation rather than conflicts. You're going to swear off going to war. It was a very bold idea. Um, Kellogg was an American. I think Briand was a Frenchman. And, And Litvinov... Mm. played a major role in getting the Soviet Union to sign up to it. And then also in 1929, he created this multilateral agreement between the USSR and a bunch of their neighbouring countries known as the Litvinov Mm. Protocol. One of my ambitions, Ray, in life is to have a doctrine or a protocol named after me. I won't be happy. I won't die happy, Ray, until I have the Riley Doctrine. What
1: what would you like it to be about? But blokes... (laughs)
0: Kick Ray in the nuts and butt plugs. Yeah.
1: A, a, Pissing off Christians. For That's everybody basically... everybody in my kingdom. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Don't
0: use it. Don't use it. Control. Just put it under your bed. Just so it's there. In case one night, you know, you're like, I just need a little extra kick over the edge. I know. Butt plug. <laughs> uh, in 1930, Stalin appointed Litvinov as the People's Commissar for Foreign Affairs. And because... He was a big believer in cooperation with the West. He worked very hard to form a close relationship with France and Britain. Um, and he was uh, uh, the major force getting the United States to finally give diplomatic recognition to the Soviets uh, when Roosevelt became president mm-hmm. in '33. In fact, here's a great story. Frankie Roosevelt sent a a goodwill ambassador to the Soviet Union after they signed this diplomatic recognition thing. And this guy and Litvinov became lifelong friends. Who was the goodwill ambassador that Frank sent? Um, Harriman? Kenny? I don't know. I'm going to play a clip of this person. Ready? All right. Can you guess who it was?
1: I didn't hear anything.
0: Exactly. Can you guess who it was? <laughs> no. Harpo Marx. <laughs> I should have put some harp playing music in there or something. For the kids at home who don't know who Harpo Marx was, uh, He was a it's one of the Marx one. brothers. He was the silent one. Yeah. He played the harp. <laughs> he said, Harpo Marx is the goodwill ambassador. Uh. They became lifelong friends. He and Litvinov, he they even performed a routine on stage together. Wow. Uh, what the fuck, man? Yeah. What was Roosevelt thinking? Was everyone else busy? Like it gets down to the bottom of the list. He goes, Groucho Marx. No, Groucho's yeah. busy. He's a Goodwill, ambassador to Germany. <laughs> <Shit>. uh, <he, laughs> uh, Who's the other one? I don't yeah, know. Groucho, Groucho was. Harpo. Who is the Italian one? Um, oh God.
1: Giuseppe. Oh, I have no idea making
0: that up. Giuseppe, I have no idea. Groucho. Groucho. Appo. Ugh. Oh bugging me. <laughs> Google it, baby. Google it. I I am no, I can't I can't not know this. I love the Marx Brothers. I've seen all their films a million times. Chico. Chico Chico. I want I want I want it to go on record that I came up with that before Wikipedia. You know how that works? Like, you can't think of something, and when you type the question into oh, Wikipedia, all of a sudden yeah. your brain fucking wakes up. Brain doesn't like competition from Wikipedia, man. It's what it is. Brain's like, oh, shit. Oh, he's going Wikipedia. Five, all right, everyone, five. wake up. Everyone, off your lunch break. We can't
1: Chico. can't
0: give in that easy. Chico. Um. Now, Litvinov was also a big part of making sure the Soviets were accepted into the League of Nations, and he represented them there uh, from mm-hmm. thirty-four to thirty-eight. But then, of course, as we said, he was replaced by Molotov in thirty-nine, when Stalin kind of realized he had to do a deal with Germany and having a Jew wasn't uh, really going to work. And Litvinov, by the way, yeah. was all for that. Uh, he later on said, do you really think I was the right person to sign a treaty with Hitler? Yeah. Uh, yeah. When... Later on, Molotov said, thank God Jews formed an absolute majority in the leadership and among the ambassadors, it wasn't good. I think he was primarily talking about Stalin's decision to purge the ministry of Jews, primarily so he could do a deal with Hitler.
1: Yeah, that's what I was about to say. Not only does Molotov get the job, but he's told to, yeah, get rid of the Jews in the foreign commissariat. So, so, uh, yeah, so Stalin is just being practical and uh, clearing it away so he can talk to the big man on the stage, which is, at this point, Hitler.
0: And after that, Litvinov was sent to Washington as the USSR's ambassador to the United States, and he died in 1951 mm. when a truck collided with his car.
1: Oh, damn. That was CIA. Well, Come There on.
0: Are, the suggestion is that he was assassinated by Stalin, yeah. um, but Litvinov's wife, after Stalin was dead so there was no reason to lie, said that her husband's relationship with Stalin was very good right up until the end and that he had heart problems. His daughter, uh, Litvinov's daughter, said that as well, I think. So the official cause of death was a heart attack. But um, he was not in the West as sort of disagreeing with the direction of the Soviets' post-war policy. He was a big believer in um, cooperation and everyone staying together. But as you and I know... and We'll talk about more as the series goes on. Can't blame all of Stalin's post-war policy on Stalin. A lot of it had to do with America as well.
1: Right.
0: But back to this proposal of security spheres. So um, not very different, really, from um, Old Black Threesomes' idea for the Security Council, uh, uh, this idea of security spheres, but is... His recommendation to Stalin and Molotov was that they don't bring it up at Yalta, given the negative attitude of the American media to the mm. idea, uh, which we know Black Threesome had fleshed it out and got shut down by court of hell, and then Leo Pazzi took it over and flipped it on its head. But Lifanov wrote to Stalin and Molotov, personally, I think Roosevelt, as a realist, sees the inevitability of... Of spheres, zones, and blocks arising in Europe, but taking account of public opinion, he will not venture to give his agreement to that in any form. And now, I think he was right, and I think we'll have evidence of that later on in the show, which is a really interesting point that I want to spend some time drilling down into later. Anyway, as you said before, Molotov and Stalin followed his advice, and the question of spheres of influence along with the question of Poland, didn't come up uh, on the agenda at the Yalta conference.
1: Yeah, because, I mean, I mean, everybody's going to uh, Yalta with their own things. Some things are more important than others. But for Stalin, if you think about the first couple of days, he wanted reparation. Didn't look like it was going to happen. He wanted Germany divided up into probably seven areas to make it nice and week. That probably wasn't going to happen. It was only going to be three or four. Now he's got to share a section with the French I'm not him, but the allies are going to Western allies are going to share a section with the French, which is going to bring France back and make it stronger. So so he's he's picking his battles just like you do in any kind of uh, conference where there's there's a whole bunch of issues. But when it comes to um, when it comes to spheres of influence, when it comes to Poland, when it comes to the Polish borders that we're going to get into later, that's when Stalin's going to rise to the occasion and show and show these guys what he is capable of. He's going to show them why everybody in Moscow and in Russia is afraid of him.
0: Yeah. Like a now, there was one American official who probably agreed with uh, Litvinov and the idea of security spheres or spheres of influence. And that was your old mate from SNL, George Cannon. <laughs> I should get a Keenan Thompson clip to play. Now... Of course, he wasn't in Yalta. He was still in Moscow. Mm-hmm. Uh, as I said before, he had gone back to Moscow after being away for seven years. Harriman had left him there running the day-to-day business of the American embassy. But um, Cannon was convinced that the Soviets were going to develop a sphere of influence in Eastern Europe, that, that they had to, yeah. that it was absolutely absolutely critical. And he basically decided that it was... In America's best interest, just to accept that as being inevitable, and he wanted to bury the idea of the United Nations as quickly and as quietly as possible. Those are his his really?
1: words.
0: Yeah, really. Wow. The guy who's known as the architect of the containment policy of the Cold War wanted to bury the United Nations. Damn. You want to take a guess at why?
1: Why would he want to bury the United Nations? Was that anything to do with the uh, the League of Nations, how it completely didn't work and didn't stop World War II from coming, or am I way off?
0: Mm, way off.
1: Why would he not want... Why? Tell me.
0: Well, I'll quote a letter that he wrote to Charles Bolin, okay. uh, Roosevelt's uh, interpreter slash diplomat. Mm-hmm. He wrote, this is what he wrote this to Bolin while Bolin was at Yalta. I'm aware of the realities of this war and of the fact that we are too weak to win it on our own. I recognise that Russia's war effort has been masterful and effective and must, to a certain extent, find its reward at the expense of other peoples in Eastern and Central Europe. Now, let me stop there for a second. Again, for Americans who still think America won the war and that the Russians just threw bodies at the Nazis and all of that propaganda bullshit that I still see on Reddit all the time. And I'm just like, oh, can't be fucking bothered even getting into it. (laughs) Um, Here's George Kennan. If anyone understood what Russia had gone through to win the war, uh, it was uh, to win the European war anyway. Right. Against the Nazis, it was this guy. He's lived there, he's an American diplomat. Russia's war effort has been masterful and effective, he said.
1: Well, not only that, but to take it one step further, I mean, now that the Russians have gotten their act together militarily, I mean, they have this amazing force, they have this very large force. Um, theoretically, they don't have to stop in Berlin. I mean, you know, they could keep going or whatever, but the point is, um, this is a done deal. They're, the Soviet boots are on the ground. America can accept this and work with the Soviets, or they could try to fight them uh, either literally or, you know, over a conference table and go, yeah, you took it all and you suffered a lot, but if you could give it all back, that would really be great. I mean, that's just not realistic. That's That simply is not the way it's done.
0: mm Back to Kennan's letter. But with all of this, I fail to see why we must associate ourselves with this political program so hostile to the interests of the Atlantic community as a whole, so dangerous to everything which we need to see preserved in Europe. Why could we not make a decent and definite compromise with them, divide Europe, frankly, into spheres of influence, keep ourselves out of the Russian sphere and keep the Russians out of ours?'
1: So basically give the Russians what they want, they hopefully they feel secure and they'll stop. They won't advance. We could focus on our part and live and let live. Separate but equal. Well, I think well, I, I think it's more about
0: what he perceived as the moral dilemma. Mm-hmm. If we cooperate, if we bring them into the United Nations, then we're kind of um, joining forces with this uh, government, which we believe to be brutal and oppressive,
1: right? Uh, we legitimize uh, we, them.
0: Exactly. Are we not legitimizing them by that? Wouldn't it be better to just divide the world up and say, "Look, you know, uh, it's but my name is Paul, and this is between you all. You stay on your side of the street. I'll stay on my side." Everybody's and uh,
1: happy. Well, except for the occupied people.
0: Now, Bolin wrote back to him, Foreign policy of that kind cannot be made in a democracy. Only totalitarian states can make and carry out such policies. Mm. Um, He also didn't think that international agreements would stop Soviet expansion. He wrote, Either our pals intend to limit themselves or they don't. I submit, as the British say, that the answer is not yet clear. But what is clear is that the Soviet Union is here to stay is one of the major factors of the world. Quarrelling with them would be easy, but we can always come to that.
1: Yeah, that's a good point. If we're going to fight him, let's, let's talk first, and if we have to, then we'll fight him.
0: Exactly. Um, and this was kind of the prevalent mood, I think, in the American delegation at Yalta. Roosevelt and his inner circle were prepared to pay a price for having a, some sort of an alliance, a friendship, an understanding mm-hmm. with Stalin. They probably believed, like Bolin, that there was always going to be an opportunity down the track to exercise other options if they needed to. But again, let's remember that America had their own plans for Europe after the war. Despite as I've said many times how it's presented in your American histories, mm-hmm. we know that the post-war period was seen as a as an historical opportunity for the U.S. to dominate global trade and the bigger the Soviet influence is in Eastern Europe, the harder it's going to be for the Americans to be able to trade so their reasons for wanting to limit Soviet sphere of influence has as much if not more to do with economic, factors than it does for giving a damn about democracy or or anything else
1: yeah because because when they all sit down at the table i mean there's there's certainly a faint accompli there i mean the, the polish people can want what they want and the ukrainians can want what they want and, and that that's fine but this is pretty much a done deal what do, where do we go from now and like you said that one quote I don't think the answer has been presented yet. They're all trying to think of what they're going to do about the border, about Poland, about future expansion. But I think they, pro- some of them, probably realized we don't know what the answer is going to be yet. But it's time to have Yalta anyway. So let's all sit down at the table and start talking to each other. And that
0: brings us back, <clears throat> brings us back to Poland. <laughs> now, uh, Churchill later on in his memoir, said Poland was discussed at... Sorry. Poland was discussed at no fewer than seven out of the eight plenary meetings of the Alta Conference, and the British record contains an interchange on this topic of nearly 18,000 words between Stalin, Roosevelt, and myself. But... yeah as we're nearly in an hour I think we uh, leave it there and we'll get into the rest of the Poland discussion in episode 39 hey Ray you didn't have to use the butt plug uh, safe word once man I think that that was a good one yeah
1: I was using my thumb oh you meant as a metaphor oh shit
0: (laughs) I was just not quite sure you know how a safe word works right
1: or a butt plug (laughs) I'll teach
0: you that when you come here.
1: Deal. ...of the Soviet military buildup on the island of Cuba. The purpose of these bases can be none other than to provide a nuclear strike capability against the Western Hemisphere.